So we have um, begun our journey uh, into a new letter in the New Testament collection of letters. Uh, this letter is written by Paul uh, to uh, one of his disciples, in this case, Titus. Uh, Paul has written letters also to Timothy, one of his other disciples, uh, and these are now typically instructive letters. What makes this letter, again, slightly unique, not so much that it elevates it to a greater purpose than other letters, but just a, a uniqueness to keep in mind is that Paul at this time, just like Peter during this time in history and some of the other disciples, as they are writing these letters, these are sort of last word letters. These are sort of letters where they're saying, we know our time is coming to an end based on the circumstances and the revelation of the Spirit of God toward us. And so we are giving you sort of our, our last bit of instruction. If you're going to remember anything, remember these things. If you're going to do anything, do these things. If you're going to focus on anything, focus on these things. And what a privilege for us as the church, as the people of God, to have at our disposal these incredible instructive letters that are summarizing for us, here's what matters. If you're going to do anything, do these things. These instructions given to Titus for him to share with and affect in the church are instructions that are in every way instructions then for us. Uh, to follow as the church, the continued story of the unfolding New Testament church of God. So uh, as we entered the letter last week, you may remember if you were here uh, that Paul starts this letter with a significant introduction uh, in a a way that he's only done uh, in Galatians and Romans, all the other letters, a, a short greeting and then into things. And in those two letters, as well as this one, it isn't without purpose. Paul is establishing a foundational theological truth to kind of say, as we move into this, man, this letter uh, is calling us to the importance of uh, uh, holding fast to truth, understanding truth, knowing truth, growing in truth, and living by truth. And he, he does this in this case uh, partly because a, a major part of this letter is going to be this idea that we establish the church on the truths of God, not on our own versions of the truths. And when they are falsehoods within the church, false teachings, man, those are terribly damaging and need to be undone. And so he starts with this introduction. And now that he has greeted Titus and said, okay, Titus, I'm writing this letter. Uh, man, let's move forward. Where does he go with this? So he's now said, I, Paul, am writing this letter for what? So that those who will come to faith will come to faith, those who belong to God, that those who come to faith will grow in the knowledge of God, those who grow in the knowledge of God would live in accordance with what they've grown in, and those who are now growing in the knowledge of God and living according to His kingdom would have their hearts and minds set on their future hope of being a part of this kingdom for how long? Forever. That's right. And so he's like, that's why I do what I do. Now, Titus... Go and do that and go and equip the church to do the same. This is our calling summarized again. Let us be a people that make Jesus known to those around us so people will come to faith, grow in the knowledge of God, live according to God's truth, 
godly lives that are full of freedom and life and have their eyes fixed on a hope and a future so that we don't live our lives stuck in the temporary realities of our day, but we live our lives uh, stuck and fixed on the eternal story we're now part of. You with me so far? Now, where does Paul go next with Titus? Grab your Bibles and we're gonna turn to Titus chapter one, verse five. Titus is right after first and second Timothy in the Bible. I only say that because it's a very short book, easily missed, and you'll be fumbling around first, second Timothy when you find those right after that Titus. If you're on a phone, just type in Titus and it'll take you there. How easy is that? All right, so uh, he's now finished the introduction. He's launched into sort of the greeting, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And then verse five, he states the purpose to which he left Titus in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Aha, there it is. So two things are happening simultaneously here. Paul is stating to Titus and for us, the purpose of this instructive letter uh, and the purpose really to which he left Titus in town, that they had started a work there. They had planted churches in several towns on the island of Crete, but they had not finished the work and Paul needed to leave. And so he left Titus there to complete a work. When a work is not complete, it is halfway done, then you need to bring it into order. You with me? And he's saying, it's not yet complete. It's not yet finished. It's not yet safe. It's not yet done. I've left you there to finish this work. And as a primary part of finishing this work, it is to a Point overseers or elders or pastors, those words are translated the same way. So you can put them into sort of a, a singularity. Overseer, pastor, elder, uh, same office to, to establish overseers in how many of the churches? All of them in Crete at all the different towns. Notice also that besides Paul just stating purpose, he's also helping us understand that if we are going to be a church that is displaying to the world our calling, then one of the first orders of business is to make sure that we have leaders and that those leaders actually follow Jesus. You with me? Because if we don't have leaders, not complete. If we have leaders, but they don't follow Jesus well, complete, but in a terribly, completely terrible way. You with me? Uh, Like, I don't want incomplete, because that doesn't go anywhere good. And I don't want bad complete. I actually want a kind of complete that allows for us as the collective to become the people that Paul wrote of in his other letters where he said the cosmos and the world looks at us. And if we are living lives following Jesus, they will see the kingdom of God and they will see the king and they will be in awe of his power and might and goodness. That is what we exist for as a collective, as the church and as individual followers of Jesus. I want to be that. I think you want to be that. We want to be that. If we're going to do that, we need leaders and we need them to be good leaders. So Paul's establishing that for us instructively, even as he's giving purpose to Titus. 
And then he puts a little thing in here that's just important because throughout the rest of the early uh, letters of the, of the New Testament or all the letters of the New Testament, whenever leadership is spoken of in the office of elder, it is always spoken of in plurality. He didn't say establish an elder at each church. What did he say? Establish elders at how many of the churches? All of them. Why? Why this? Because, again, in the contrasting realities of many of the early New Testament letters or the New Testament letters, you will see a contrast between those who are serving Christ and serving his church, the body, for his glory and his sake, and those who have bought into the idea that this is something for them to have for their gain, where they are arrogant and they are boastful and they are seeking their own honor and glory rather than the honor and glory of Christ. There's going to be this contrast constantly. And what God did as a gracious act toward both the church and the leaders in the church, the elders, is that he made sure that his instruction was the leadership should always be a plurality of leaders so that no one person forgets or believes that they actually own the church. The church does not belong to any one person. It only belongs to one and one alone, and that is King Jesus. That's right. This is not your church. It's not my church. It's not your body. It's not my body. It's his church and it's his body. And it's not your bride and it's not my bride. So don't flirt with her because she does not belong to you. She belongs to Jesus. And you don't mess with the groom's bride and pretend she's yours. And to protect the leader from believing that or the church from being stuck with a leader that believes that leadership is always in plurality so that there is a collective of leaders that are leading the singularity of the church on behalf of Jesus for his glory and the well-being of his bride, his body, the church. And so the plurality of elders matters a great deal. It doesn't matter if you started the church, founded the church, uh, if, if you grew the church, whatever those things are. What matters is it's not yours. Uh, in, in our case, this is very much a reality here. I had the privilege, along with my wife, um, and at that time, two of my kids moving here to see this place uh, become a, a thing because God invited me and called me to step into this. And myself and some others, we launched this church and, and this church has become what she is today in all that she does. And yet this church belongs no more to me or no, no more ever did it belong to me than before it even existed. It is whose church? Jesus is. So I, as a position of lead pastor here and even founding pastor, have no more space to call this mine than any one of you do. And the way we do that is we make sure that I am as submitted to the collective of the elders as we are to one another. That means that those elders, the collective of elders, are who oversee, govern, uh, shepherd, care for, and teach in this church. Even here on this stage, as I teach, among you are sitting some of our elders. 
every Sunday without exception. And they are listening in to my teaching as we listen in when Joel or Brady or anyone else teaches. And between gatherings, between the nine and 11 and after the 11, I will have an encounter with one or several of them who will say, careful of this, watch for that. That wasn't clear. This not for the sake of being better, but for the sake of being truthful. And I am submitted to that as they are submitted to one another and we are submitted to one another. That is what Paul's intent here is. Go and establish a plurality so that no one person alone owns the church. We are not called to honor a person because of the church. We are called to honor our King Jesus. And not to say that we should not honor one another. We are called by Paul actually to do what? Outdo each other in honoring one another, but not in the same way we honor Jesus as though this is a work of mine or anybody else's. It is a work of Jesus and Jesus alone. And we had a chance to participate in it. You with me? So he's already established this kind of deal. Go out, find leaders, overseers, and, 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 and find several for each church and put them into place. And when you do that, you will complete the work that I've left you to complete and set the churches in Crete up for becoming the churches God has called them to be. There it is. Wow. Now what Paul's going to do for Titus and for us is he is going to say, okay, so you're going to go find these overseers and you want good leaders. How do you identify these good leaders? How do you find these good leaders? What does it take to discover whether someone is right for this space? You don't just want to go find anybody here want to want to lead the church and be important and take over? I do. Great. We have someone. Everybody, big hand. For, that not not a good idea. Not a good idea. So how how do how do we do this? Now what Paul is going to do is he is actually to make his point clear about how we identify good leaders, elders for the church. He is going to contrast two worlds. He's going to contrast two worlds that are very real in Crete, in the churches in this time, and very real in our time as well, and have been very real in between both those times. He's going to contrast what we're looking for in a good leader, and he's going to show us what it looks like when you've found someone that should not be affirmed into this kind of leadership. How many of you guys hear compost? Anybody hear compost? Oh, a few hands go up. Okay, we, we, we compost uh, at, at my house. Um, and we compost as, as much as is, is reasonably and, and even unreasonably worthy of, of compost. Uh, I think the goal of my wife is trash can empty, recycling full, compost full, right? So that's kind of our, our effort. And so anything that comes into our kitchen, uh, when there is waste from what comes into our kitchen, it is either in the compost pile or it is in the chicken bin for the chickens. Those are the two options. And then we consume the rest. Now, here's what's interesting about composting. Before we put something in the compost, it enters our kitchen as very appetizing. That's what, if it's edible, it goes in the compost because then it's, uh, it, it, will, it will be good for compost. So first it comes into the kitchen as appetizing, edible. So fruit goes in our composter a lot. And right now, especially mangoes, for those of you that were around a couple weeks ago, lots of mangoes rolling through our kitchen, appetizing and edible. And then after consumption, the waste from the mango ends up in the composter, right? Now, the way 
compost works in our house is that outside of our kitchen on our patio, there is a trash can that we put all of the compost materials into until that trash can fills up. That takes a couple of days usually. When the trash can is full, the trash can is carried out to the compost pile that is all the way in our backyard. And we have it all the way in the backyard for good reason. Because in a compost pile, as things are slowly rotting, uh, it lets off um, wondrous odors if you are, for example, uh, a, a squirrel, pig, or raccoon. But if you are a human, they are not wondrous at all. So then that bin gets carried down. So into our kitchen comes fruit. Then the fruit is, uh, is cut up into beautiful parts and goes into a fruit bowl. And we mix different fruits to create this wonderful fruit bowl. And have you ever walked into a kitchen or restaurant where there is a bowl of mixed fruit that is fresh and beautiful and perfectly ripened and all mixed? And there's some juices mixed into it. So some of them have kind of squished a bit and they're kind of just like, this is, are you with me? And you're like, can I, can I take some? And then my kids will walk in or I'll walk in just to be honest and you grab a raspberry or usually a piece of mango. Oh, and then Brooke's like, that is for the collective. And there's the fruit bowl. Then all the stuff on the side gets collected and taken out to the compost. When it's sitting in the compost, a couple days go by. By the time the compost bin is full, it is usually my job to take that bin and carry it to the compost pile. That is a thing. Because when you pick that bin up, it's heavy, number one, because it's got a lot of stuff in it. And uh, FYI, we have bunnies. Um, and so our bunnies live on our patio and, and they have a little litter box, but they use it sometimes. And, and so uh, you got to sweep bunny poop up all the time. And bunny poop's not like, uh, like gross poop. It's the little hard pellets, so it's fine. But still, you know, it's poop. And so you sweep it all up and all the bunny poop and all the bunny materials, and after, guess where they go? in the compost. So the compost is a mix of fruits rotting, bunny poop, and then if my wife has a plant that's died and the soil's no longer worth transferring to another pot, the dead plant and soil goes in there. So it's sand, dead plants, rotting fruit, rotting everything else, bunny poop, and whatever other materials you can find. That are, so it's, it's not a fun space. And then when you carry it, I mean, it's, the, the, the second you open the lid, the first thing that happens is you get, a, you, you get a, a, an onslaught of fruit flies. Because in rotting stuff, what loves the smell of rotting stuff? Flies. So, the fruit flies. so first you got to open and be like, ah! and then have them do their thing. And then you grab it and you carry it at a distance because it's now, it, it, there's liquid at the bottom. It's just like a good fruit salad that liquefies a bit. But this liquid, not the same as a fruit salad. Liquid, but not the same. And then you carry it down. And then when you dump it into the compost on the top of the compost pile, the first stuff at the top falls and then all the liquid comes next and it slushes and it smells bad. And then uh, inside, part of decomposition are these glorious little creatures God created called maggots. And they're little white maggots and they form inside the compost. So after you've dumped the compost, you then carry it back and then you get a hose and you spray it and then the water hits and hits you and you're like, ah, I don't know what just hit me. Was it water? Was it, was it rotting mango? Was it bunny poop? Or was it a, was it a, a fly? Or was it a, one of those worms? I don't know. And so you feel gross and then you get it all cleaned up and you put it back only for it to begin to be filled up again so that it can become a rotted, horrid reality. 
What Paul's about to do is he's about to say this. When, when, when you're looking for the people that are going to lead the church and you want to be able to say of them, I follow them as they follow Jesus because we're not here to follow any person. We are all trying to follow who? Jesus. Jesus. But Paul would say, we actually look to each other and as you see each other follow Jesus, then you inspire and stir one another up toward love and good deeds, toward following Jesus. And in particular, look to your leaders who ought to be following Jesus uh, with, with the most zeal. And you ought to be able to say, I follow them as they follow Jesus. Paul actually said it that way. Follow me, Paul said, as I follow Jesus. So when you're establishing leaders... You want leaders that you can say, follow them as they follow Christ. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to start off by saying, what you're looking for is the bowl, a person who when you look at their life, it's like a bowl of mixed fruit that's super appetizing. And you're like, I, I want some of that. Like, like that, I want to be around that. I, I want to get in the kitchen if that bowl's sitting there. I would like to experience some of what that bowl has for me. What Paul is not doing is trying to create an exhaustive list or a short list of qualifications to say, this is it. Once you've got these down, done, check the box out. He's also not making these qualifications uh, unimportant. It's not about each one individually. It's about the whole. He's saying... Find someone that when you look at their life, the fruit of their life, you look and go, this looks like what scripture says it should look like. This matches the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of God. What is the fruit of God? Do you remember? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what is born out of someone that is following Jesus and trusting his word by his spirit to live it out. Those things are the markers of their lives. It does not mean that they never, ever, ever have any moment in their life where those things don't go awry. It means if you look at their life, that's what marks their life. You're like, that person is, is generally these things. And what Paul's saying is, look for someone who marks the fruit of God in the totality of their life. Look how he unpacks this. We are about to enter the fruit bowl. The appetizing things coming into the kitchen that you're like, want some of that, want some of that. Here we go, ready? Take, take a look. He says, if anyone, this is who you should identify and affirm as elders. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So he starts there. This is interesting. So he starts with find someone who's above reproach. This is the whole fruit bowl. He starts with the whole fruit bowl. He doesn't say find someone who has these qualities as a starting point, this fruit and this fruit and this fruit. He's like, find someone that when you look at their life, you look at the bowl and you're like, this is good. This is good. Above reproach. Above reproach really means someone who does not have any legitimate accusations against them that you are aware of. It doesn't mean that they've not had accusations either given to them or that parts of their life. So for example, if my kids come to you and they say, man, you're not going to believe this, but, but my dad, sometimes uh, he he's gets very angry in the kitchen and then he says to us, go to your room. That's it. You're grounded for the next 47 years. And he de definitely loses his temper. 
that would be an accurate accusation. You're like, what? Oh, you're about, you're about to read it. No, that, that, that'd be accurate. I, I, I sometimes like, uh, just drive me to the point. I'm like, that's it. Get out. You're all grounded forever. And then I unground them shortly after because having them in my house forever doesn't sound like a great idea to any of us, right? So, so, so what, what, what he's getting at here is above reproach means that when this person, the kinds of accusations that you bump into through their life, you're like, yes, but those accusations do not bring reproach to their life or the church. They're the kinds you, that we all go, Yep, that's, that's, a, that, that's a part of, of life and journey. And yes, part of what needs transforming. But that is not a problematic reality of reproach. He's saying this person, when you look at their whole life, you should say this of them. That's the kind of person I'd want to follow. That's the kind of person I'd want to be like. Do you hear that? That's the kind of person I'd want to be like. Does it mean I want to be everything they are, including the bad stuff? No, it says their life, I want to be like that. I hope my kids say that of me. I hope your kids say that of you if you have kids. I, I, I want to be like mom or like dad. It doesn't mean I want to be all their parts because some of their parts I want to be nothing like, but I want to be like them above reproach. And then the very first thing Paul says is, when you are looking for an overseer elder, where should you start with your examination? In their home. What? This is very different. This isn't a workplace resume. This isn't how you're doing on the job. This isn't just a vocational reality. This isn't just how well you behave in the church. The first place we look to see if someone's life is a fruit bowl that you want to be around is in their home with their family or close loved ones. You go talk to them. You go ask. You go examine. And he says, find the people that demonstrate faithfulness in their home. They are faithful to their spouse, the husband of one wife. What Paul's not trying to say here is, if there is an issue, and perhaps there was a significant reality in a broken marriage, that's it disqualified. He's asking this question. If something has occurred in a person's life that brings into question whether they are in fact faithful and in fact above reproach, what should you do? Examine it. And if you find that in fact it is a thing that demonstrates that that brings into question their faithfulness, then you should not appoint them as a church leader because you shouldn't say to others, be like them. But if after examining you're like, oh, this had nothing to do with their lack of faithfulness, but a circumstance out, outside of their control, then you have examined rightly. Why? Because who are we dealing with here when we're dealing with spouses and children and stuff? Other humans. And other humans can do what? Make choices for themselves. So here it says, husband of one wife and having believing children. Yeah, tricky, isn't it? Because what if, what if you have someone and their child decided to abandon the faith? Does that disqualify them? So number one, uh, Paul actually in the book of Timothy, he uses the word uh, that's closer to the idea of well-behaved or faithful children. That's actually the word here that can be translated as well into faithful, not necessarily believing. The reason it's translated into believing often here is that this particular Greek word, when used in other contexts in scripture in the New Testament, is always in the context of a believer-unbeliever. So they translate this sometimes believing children. But it is equally accurate to say faithful children. 
Now, this is one speaking of children in the home, and two, it is also begging this question. When you have a person and their children seem generally faithful, not pursuing of pleasures and, and, and not insubordinate, then you have the sense like, okay, that, that seems that they are parenting well. If you don't have kids doing that, then it begs an examination. And if you examine and say the reason these kids are insubordinate and don't, aren't faithful is because this guy doesn't parent well loses his temper, whatever it is, then you're like, okay, this has demonstrated unfaithfulness. If you have a bunch of kids and one of them is just choosing to be a buffoon, as we all sometimes do, that is not necessarily the consequence of an unfaithful parent. Can be, should be examined, but isn't necessarily always the case. If this was simply about insubordination and debauchery, meaning the pursuit of pleasures, I was disqualified at, uh, when, my, when Hadley was like one and a half or two. Now, Hadley's wonderful now. She's in her 20s now. But at, at, at two, you know, uh, just FYI, she lied sometimes. Uh, and FYI, she wanted to do her own thing. And, and FYI, she didn't obey me all the time. And then the, the rest of her siblings, one at a time, did the same thing around two. So at, at every two-year-old mark, I'd be disqualified as an elder immediately. My children are insubordinate, disobedient, and pursuing their own pleasures at this point. That's not what the scripture's talking about. The scripture's saying, look in the home, and make sure that the leaders you have are faithful where first? In their home. Managing their home well, faithful to those they've been called to love. If they're not faithful to the people in their home and they're not managing their home well, how will they be in the church? Unfaithful, not managing it well, out for their own gain, looking for their own stuff, absent from what they're called to, not a good idea. So if you're going to be an elder, Paul says, make sure you're willing for the people to examine your home life. It's a big ask but an important one. And then he says this. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he, he's now getting into virtues. And what he's going to say is this. Again, when you're looking at the whole fruit, fruit bowl, are you looking at someone who's unpredictable? Someone who, who oh, he's, he's great Monday through Thursday, but Friday nights don't be around him. Because, you know, he drinks a little too much and then, you know, he's unpredictable. He's using this to say, listen, if you're around someone that sometimes decent football, sometimes crazy, football on the ground, stuff everywhere, not a good idea. You're looking for someone whose life reflects a self-control, a predictability, a, a reality of faithfulness in the way that he lives. Choices that means he trusts the spirit of God versus getting himself under the influence of others or alcohol or, or whatever addiction, substance, don't do that. You're looking for somebody who is not arrogant, who is not for themselves, who is not quick-tempered, greedy for gain. But what are you looking for? Someone who's hospitable. Simply meaning this. When you're around them, you feel like they want you around and you feel like you want to be around them. That's what hospitable really ultimately, it doesn't mean they love having people in their home every day. Maybe, maybe not. Hospitable means they are approachable. They are nice to be around. You do not constantly feel like, get me out of this conversation as quickly as possible. This is going south fast. Lover of good. When you look at their life, they just seem to do good things and enjoy it and love it self-controlled, they're upright, and they're holy. They live like Jesus, and they're disciplined. And then he switches from virtues as a final point. 
especially in the context of the church, he says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this person who we are setting up as overseer among other overseers in the church, their, their whole life needs to be the fruit bowl. Their life personally needs to be the fruit bowl and they need to be people that trust God's word as it is rightly taught so they know the truth, they live by it and they are able to teach it and utilize it in a manner worthy of the gospel to rebuke those who are not living according to it. Wow, there it is, the fruit bowl. When you encounter folks like this and you've done your examining and you go, this is a fruit bowl full of good fruit, then you go for it. It doesn't mean that the fruit bowl doesn't have some juices. When I pull a mango into my kitchen, uh, do the mangoes of my tree come out and every one of them is perfect? In fact, can I ask a big, big question? Is any mango off my tree perfect? No, it never is. Not, not even the ones you get from the store. There's always a little browning part or a little hole in it or a little this. And what do you have to do? You have to kind of cut through it and get rid of that. But do I look at a mango and go, there's dirt on this mango. <laughs> no. Or I'm like, oh, it's got a brown spot on the top. Sometimes I'm like, Cause like that banana is rotting. And I'm like, the edge of it is overripe. You cut it off and you eat the rest of the good banana, right? So what he's not saying is look for perfect people. He's saying, look for good fruit, really good fruit that you want to be around. And then he says this, now we're going to enter the compost. You ready? We've been around the fruit bowl. Welcome to the compost. And, and by the way, I'm not calling these other people compost parlors. And, and actually... Can I just be accurate? Paul's not really calling them compost. He's going to quote one of their own that calls them compost. Okay, watch. If there are many, I'm sorry, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party was in their context. Some of the false teachings going around. We have our own context. Circumcision party was a bunch of legalism and weird stuff and other things. In our context, it could be self-help versions of the gospel. It could be prosperity gospel ver versions of the gospel. It could be poverty gospel versions of the gospel. All sorts of other things in our context here saying, you know what's going around in your context. These people are, are, are empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced. What do we do with compost that's in the kitchen? Get it out of the kitchen. If you walk in the kitchen, you're like, whoa, it smells terrible in here. Likely there's some compost rotting. And what do you do with that? Oh, I found it. Excellent. I think it's great right there. Why? Because then the kitchen will smell worse and worse and worse until we all die. That's what Paul's saying here. When you find the compost, what do you do? As much as when you find the fruit, you affirm the fruit and you put it in leadership, what do you do when you find the compost? Silence it, get it out. Okay, watch this. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they are deceiving people in the church and those people are being disrupted either by giving resources to them, following their ways, getting into false gospels, these families in the church. So how dangerous is false teaching and people who are out for their own gain? 
Very dangerous. He's contrasting. Find those who aren't this way and affirm them in leadership so you can follow them as they follow Jesus. And when you find people like this, do not affirm them and actually silence this. Look at this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> so you see, Paul's like about to say, you know the Cretan's culture. No, he's not talking about individual people. If you're a Cretan, this is what you are. He's like, what is the Cretan culture? It's this way. That was their culture. Our culture has its own way. And here's what he's saying. When the culture bleeds into the church, not God's culture, your culture, and people in your church, leaders in your church, are behaving like the culture does, that's not the kinds of leaders you want. Their culture should look like whose culture? Jesus's culture, his character, his kingdom's virtues, not the virtues of your culture. So don't look for those who are sparkling like the rest of the culture, bending to the culture's nuances and realities, trying to make everything fit into the culture so they can look awesome. Don't follow those folks. Follow people who are trying to look like Jesus. Even when Jesus opposes the culture you happen to be in. Cretans, you know what they're like, and this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, watch what Paul does right here. He's contrasted the two, and now he's going to literally show us the fruit bowl and show us the compost and give us how we identify this without making this a list of perfections or imperfections. If you have any one of these things on the bad list, you're out. And if you don't have all these in, things in perfection, you're out. No, he goes like this. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. Look what he writes. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. He now contrasts this way. Fruit bowl, compost. When you have fruit come in, I've already said this, but let me repeat it. When you have fruit come in, is the fruit perfect? No. no, but it's a whole fruit and it looks appetizing and ready. And what do you do with the stuff that are imperfections? You cut them out, you work around them, you identify them. You don't just go, oh, just pretend it's not there. You're like, you, you work around it, but, but you've got a piece of fruit or a fruit salad and you're like, this is awesome. When you go to the composter, on occasion, uh, believe it or not, in my home, people will throw away things that are half-eaten and there's still some really good fruit. Like, you know, when a mango, you take the skin and you cut the things and they'll eat some of it and then the skin goes in the composter and you look down there and there's a really perfect square of mango inside the compost. It's beautiful. I mean, it's good mango. It's like legit good mango. Or there's a blackberry that fell in there and you're like, oh, it's still a whole blackberry and it's not even like decomposing yet. What do you think I do with those? Eat them, someone says. It is a possibility, but let me set your hearts at rest. I'm sure someone here will do it, but not me. Because what is in that compost? Rotting death. Thank you. Death. So death is in that compost. Death is winning. There is bunny poop in there. There is, there is compost from my, my wife's dead plants. There's rotting fruit and there's maggots. And I don't know what's gotten into that perfect square of mango. And here's what Paul's saying. When you have someone and you look at their life in totality and it's good fruit, pure fruit, just there's going to be some things. Don't worry about those. Work on those. Disciple those. But if you look at something and there's some good in it, but it's in the compost bin, all of it's terrible. That's what he's saying here. What is pure 
to those who are pure, all of it is pure. It doesn't mean the brown parts of the fruit are pure. It means if the whole fruit looks like good fruit, then don't worry about the little parts. What I mean by don't worry is work with them. Cut them out. Expect that person to be growing in those. But if you have a person that looks more like compost, don't do this. Yeah, but look, this one thing here is good. I mean, generally they're compost. They teach badly and falsely. They're in it for themselves, but they are hospitable. Excellent. Appoint them as an elder. We do this a lot in the church, or at least the leaders do this a lot. You come and like, gosh, there's a lot, but I've got this. And what Paul's saying here is compost is compost. Fruit bowl is fruit bowl. Fruit bowl has a couple of things in it that aren't great. I get it. Compost has a couple of things in it that are great, I get it, but you don't dig through the compost to find a square of mango or a blackberry. Not a good idea. In the fruit bowl, if you find a blueberry that fell in there that isn't great, what do you do with the blueberry? You just toss it in the compost. That's okay. But what you don't do is like, oh my gosh, there's a blueberry that's squishy. Fruit bowl in the compost. Do you get what I'm saying? So what Paul's not trying to do here is give us a list of things to check boxes on or a list of things to avoid. He's saying, look for a good fruit, not bad fruit. And when you find bad fruit, what do you do? Get it out of the kitchen. When you find good fruit, what do you do? Appoint it as leader. And how many leaders do you need? A multitude so that the good fruit doesn't turn arrogant and stupid. Because when the good fruit is alone, the good fruit will. Because the good fruit will, rem will think, oh, this is mine, I make all the decisions here, and I direct the ship. Very dangerous for the soul. So, a plurality of elders that are good fruit, appointed together to lead the body of Christ, to serve the church of God, to equip the saints to do the work of the gospel, the work of ministry, so that we together can do this. And then I land here. Boy, you might be sitting here saying, yep, yep, the, the, our leaders need to, th th that's it. Our leaders need to, need to do that. Who is called uh, in the church to uh, have the fruit of the Spirit mark their lives? All of us. Who's called to give a good account for the things you believe, to teach the gospel well? All of us. Who is called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? All of us. The leaders are not the ones called to this and they're held to that and the rest of us get off the hook. The leaders are simply the starting point in the church so that we have someone to follow who's following Jesus so that we can all eventually be following Jesus. You ought not to be following a human. You ought not to be enamored by a human, not by me, not by one of the other teachers here, not by some celebrity, pastor, teacher, person, not by anyone. Can you bring honor to your leaders at times? Yes, and should they bring honor to you? And should we bring honor to each other? Of course, but if you follow a human and you are enamored by that human, you are in for trouble and you are putting that human in danger because they're gonna believe that they're worthy of your pursuit and they're gonna turn into a psycho. Can I say all that out loud? <laughs> but if you follow Jesus and your leaders follow Jesus and you serve each other in following Jesus so that all hail King Jesus becomes our reality, then the leaders are safe and you are safe. And what Paul is simply saying to Titus is, if you want the church to live out the call that we are called to, find good leaders, appoint them, examine them before you appoint them, 
deeply in their homes and their whole lives, find good fruit, and then say of those leaders, you know what? You're not perfect, but I could follow you as you follow Jesus. Because I'm not following you, I'm following Jesus. And when you stop following Jesus, guess what I'll do? Stop following you. Because I was never following you in the first place. I was just enjoying the privilege of watching your life reflect Jesus so I had tangibility to follow Jesus. You stop reflecting Jesus, I transition and keep following Jesus and find someone else who's following Jesus to do it with me. If I or any of the leaders here stop following Jesus, you better stop following us. And you should try to be like your leaders in the ways that they are trying to be like Jesus, and you should not try to be like your leaders in the ways that they are not like Jesus. You should help them become more like Jesus as they are trying to help you become more like Jesus. And that is where Paul begins our journey to become a church that reflects the kingdom culture and realities and values and heart of Jesus, our calling. Pray with me. God, thank you for your incredible love for us and the instructive way in which you are consistently and constantly showing us in such clarity and practicality, this is what it looks like. God, we are reminded today through these contrasting lists what all of our lives ought to be striving to look like. Like the fruit of the Spirit, hospitable and, and, and gentle and not quick-tempered and approachable and, and kind and predictable and self-controlled, not bent toward things that cause us to be fools. And you've shown us what our lives should not look like, arrogant and self-directed and manipulative and after our own gain, whatever that might look like, using other people. So God, we all want to be a people that lead well anyone who's watching us as we follow you well. We all want to be leaders that lead well. But for those of us that you are calling to a point as leaders in the church, elders, God, show us those who are ready to lead in that way and who are living lives that are good fruit, that we can follow those as they follow you and that we can encourage those so that they would follow you well so we could follow them well as they follow you well so we can all be following you well god help us help us to do that those who are in our church that are elders strengthen them protect them guide them transform them stir them disciple them refine them make them more like you so that they would fulfill their calling well as being a shepherd for you and show us as a church what it looks like to mutually encourage each other and mutually submit to each other as we try to follow you as one together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.